So yeah, I gave a version of this talk on one of our Thursday night services at Riverside. But I am really honored to give it again to you guys, to my whole church family. And very especially for the last week that the gates are going to be here. Because we're going to miss you guys. Um, we're going to start in Matthew eleven two through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I'm going to pray before we get started. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. We just ask that you direct our hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. We just ask that you open our hearts to hear the truth of your word, to be vulnerable and to be honest with you. And I pray, Lord, that the words that I speak are not my words, but that they are your words and that they will always, always point us to your son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so I I am a semi-closeted sugar addict. It's true. And it's a little bit embarrassing because I actually am a little bit of a hippie. I have had two home births and I brew my own kombucha. And if you guys don't, if you guys don't know what kombucha is, Google it. Um, and that's going to give you a really good idea of how much of a hippie I am. It's weird stuff. Uh, but my favorite like all-time sugar fix are these chocolate chip cookie sandwiches from Sweet Fury, which is a bakery in Riverside. And they are this magical combination of sugar sandwiched between chocolate and more sugar. And I, I reserve these to indulge in that particularly glorious moment when both of my children are asleep and the dishes are done. And so one night I sit down and I open the box and I realize that the sweet girl behind the counter had given me the wrong cookie sandwich. And I, like, I just kind of lose it. Like, I do this full body, like, fit. You know, I, I am so offended. I am so angry that this is not what I expected that, I don't know, I really just freak out. And this, it's like not the first time that my husband has seen me do this, but it is not pretty, people. And so what to do? I have this cookie sandwich, and is it not delicious and rich and filled with sugar just like the one I normally get? I don't know. Like, I don't know because I literally will not touch it. I refuse to eat it because I am so upset over this. And so I say no to the cookie sandwich, and I pass it on to my husband, who is more than happy to receive it. It's funny because it is true. Um, And so like in my story, John the Baptist was expecting a certain outcome, right? And also like in my story, he was offended when he received something else. Granted, uh, John's situation was a little more serious than mine, right? In this passage in Matthew, John the Baptist is in prison. He is in the dark night of his soul, and he is dealing with some very legitimate unmet expectations and doubts. Before we dig into that, I really want to get a little backstory on John the Baptist first so we can figure out how he got here. John the Baptist was like the original Bear Grylls hipster, 
right? He spent his life roaming the wilderness, sustained by a diet of locusts, bugs, crunchy bugs, big ones, and wild honey. He was clothed in camel hair, which he tied on with a leather belt. Hipster. Now, all things considered, John was not the most social guy. The scriptures describe him as neither eating nor drinking, which does mean that he didn't drink alcohol, but he also wasn't going to the same house parties that Jesus was going to at the time, right? And he was born to some very old and very barren parents. And the angel Gabriel visited his father, Zechariah, and said, Zechariah, I know that you're really old, and I know that you're really barren, but you're going to have a son, and he's going to bring you great joy. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he will receive great stature before the Lord and turn the hearts of Israel back to their God. It was also prophesied that he would be called the prophet of the Most High, going before the Lord to prepare his ways. And so let's do a quick recap. Now, if you're John the Baptist, you don't indulge in food or drink. You turn the hearts of a nation back to their God. Easy enough, yeah. And you prepare the way for the Messiah whose arrival everyone has been waiting thousands of years for. But no pressure, right? But if you fast forward 33 years, John's ministry is in full swing and things are actually going really well for John. He is this mysterious character, right? But crowds of people are flocking to the wilderness to hear him preach and to be baptized, even, especially, Jesus. And then things start taking a turn for John, right? He makes an offhanded comment about the king's wife slash sister-in-law, suggesting that maybe she should not be his wife and his sister-in-law at the same time, right? Fair enough. Good point. Uh, But hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. The queen is mildly put offended by what John said, and she wants his head for it, literally. And spoiler alert, she gets it. John is beheaded and dies in prison. But while waiting in prison, John starts to think, he starts to do what I think many of us would do in that situation. He, he kind of starts to reflect. He plays back everything over in his mind, the prophecies, the public ministry, his baptizing of Jesus. And I imagine him thinking, after all of that, after everything that I did, how did I end up here? And people, that's when it happens. John the Baptist, I mean, John the Baptist, he doubts. If Jesus is really the Messiah, the Son of God, and if I'm really the prophet sent to usher him in, wouldn't he, couldn't he come get me out of prison? Surely. Unless he's gotten the whole thing wrong. Maybe Jesus isn't the one. Are you the one who is to come, or shall I look for another? Because I thought that you were the one, but look where that's gotten me. It is the original sin. It is the original lie that the enemy has been feeding us from day one. Did God really say that? Did God really say not to eat of the fruit of the tree? 
Did he really say prophet of the most high, great stature with God? Because surely he didn't mean that you were going to die in prison. And John takes the bait. I mean, like we all do at some point, John takes the bait. And before I keep going, I, I want to be really clear on this. God can handle our prayers of doubt. He can handle our deep questioning. And we know this because even Jesus found himself in that place before God. The night that Jesus was betrayed, just after the Last Supper, we find Jesus laid out before the Father in his place of sorrow and questioning. In Matthew 26, 36 through 41. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You need to know that you have a God who knows what it is like to be abandoned by those closest to him when he needed them the most. So could you not watch with me one hour? You have a God who knows what it is like to be undone, sorrowful to the point of death, to pray and to beg the Father for something and for the answer to be no. And I assure you that it was not from a lack of faith on Jesus' part. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And I want to contrast that with John's words. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus, like John, is in his dark place, and he has death on deck, and he's questioning, is this the way that it has to be? But did you catch the difference between John and Jesus? Because when God doesn't give Jesus what he asks for, he doesn't threaten to go find another God who will. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now I want to go back, and I, I really want to dig into how Jesus responds to John's question. Because his answer to John's messengers at first glance does not seem like a very clear answer. John asks a very direct question. Are you the one or should I look for somebody else? But Jesus doesn't give him a very direct answer. He doesn't say, yeah, dude, it's me. You know this. Or, sorry, but actually, I'm not. Jesus says, go and tell John what you see and hear. And then he starts describing how the sick are being healed and the dead are being raised up and how the poor are having good news preached to them. But what Jesus is actually doing is he is quoting in Isaiah a passage from Isaiah 35. Go and tell John what you see and hear. Go and tell John to take a look at Isaiah 35. 
The Bible doesn't tell us what happens when John hears Jesus' response. But I'm willing to bet he probably went and got himself reacquainted with Isaiah 35, right? And Isaiah 35, it is all about the kingdom of God, of what it looks like when God comes back and redeems his people. Jesus isn't giving him some easy yes or no pat answer. He is reminding John the Baptist what the kingdom of God looks like. The kingdom that John has been called to usher in. Jesus is directing his heart back to the Father. Which, if you remember, is exactly what John the Baptist has been called to do. To direct the hearts of Israel back to their God. Jesus is reminding John the very truth of who he is. Of his identity and what he has been created to do. And Jesus doesn't stop there with John, right? After quoting Isaiah, he goes on to give this whole other speech about how John the Baptist was the greatest man ever born of a woman, which I think seems to be a very bold honor to bestow on this bug-eating, camel-hair-wearing, Messiah-doubting guy who essentially just sent his messengers to publicly challenge the identity of Jesus. Yet he says, no greater man ever born of a woman than John the Baptist. Jesus doesn't respond by rebuking him or condemning him or abandoning him. Jesus pours his love out on him. He pours his affirmation on him. John, my doubting prophet, you are greater than them all. And that is exactly what God does with us. When we are doubting, and when we are in our dark place, and we are wondering if maybe we have gotten this whole thing wrong, because I thought that you were the one, but look where it's gotten me. He doesn't mock us, and he doesn't abandon us. He pours his love on us. He pours his affection on us, and he reminds us of who we are, but more importantly, he reminds us who he is just like he did with John. Okay, I'm going to read you guys something, and it's actually an excerpt from a Larry Crabb book. Um, And if you've hung around the Christian self-help aisle long enough, you have probably bumped into one or two of his books. Uh, But I want you to stay with me. I encourage you to stay with me, because it does such a great job of summing all of this up. When I was three years old, our family lived for a while in my grandparents' big, old-fashioned house. The only bathroom was on the second floor. And one Saturday afternoon, I knew it was Saturday, Dad was home. I decided I was a big boy and could use the bathroom without anyone's help. So I climbed the stairs, closed and locked the door behind me, and for the next few minutes, felt very self-sufficient. And then it was time to leave and I couldn't unlock the door. I tried with every ounce of my three-year-old strength, but I couldn't do it. I panicked, and I felt again like a very little boy as a thought went through my head, I might spend the rest of my life in this bathroom. (laughs) My parents and likely the neighbors heard my desperate scream. Are you okay? Mom shouted through the door she couldn't open from the outside. Did you fall? Did you hit your head? I can't unlock the door, I yelled. Get me out of here. And I wasn't aware of it then, but Dad raced down the stairs, 
ran to the garage to find the ladder, hauled it off the hooks, and leaned it against the side of the house just beneath the bathroom window. With adult strength, he pried it open, climbed into my prison, walked past me, and with the same strength, turned the lock and opened the door. Thanks, Dad, I said, and ran out to play. And that's how I thought the Christian life was supposed to work. When I got stuck in a tight place, I should do all I can to free myself. When I can't, I should pray. Then God shows up. He hears my cries. Get me out of here. I want to play. And he unlocks the doors to the blessings that I desire. And sometimes he does. But now, no longer three years old and approaching 60, I'm realizing the Christian life doesn't work that way. And I wonder, are any of us content with God? Do we even like him when he doesn't open the door we most want opened? When a marriage doesn't heal, when rebellious kids still rebel, when friends betray, when financial reverses threaten our comfortable way of life, when the prospect of terrorism looms, when health worsens despite much prayer, when loneliness intensifies, depressions deepen, when ministries die. God has climbed through the small window in my dark room, but he doesn't walk by me to turn the lock that I couldn't budge. Instead, he sits down on the bathroom floor and says, come, sit with me. He seems to think that climbing into the room to be with me matters more than letting me out to play, and I don't always see it that way. Get me out of here, I scream. If you love me, unlock the door. And dear friend, the choice is ours. Either we can keep asking him to give us what we think will make us happy, to escape the dark room and run to the playground of blessings, or we can accept his invitation to sit with him, for now perhaps in darkness, and seize the opportunity to know him better and represent him well in this difficult world. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to him and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John's salvation didn't come from his circumstances, whether or not he got out of prison. It came from Jesus. And our circumstances, they don't matter whether we, whether we have a success or a total fail, our highs or our lows, our salvation, it comes from Jesus. Jesus is our hope in that dark place because it is a difficult world. You have to know that you have a God who saves, a God who redeems, a God who loves Because regardless of our doubts, in the midst of our dark nights, he is steadfast. Not because of how we feel, but because of the truth of who he is. And that is the hope of the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus. Let's stand. I think that sometimes we just needed to be reminded of the hope of Jesus, right? That that is the good news of the gospel. And I think that, you know, maybe some of you might be in that dark night. And 
God wants you to bring your doubts. He wants you to bring your questions to him so that he can respond by pouring out his love and his affection on you. So he can remind you of who you are, of who he is. And at this point in all of our services, we like to leave space to respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing, of how he is stirring up in our hearts. And so if he is stirring something up in your heart, if you need to be reminded that God is good. Or maybe it's the first time that you've really heard that God is good and that he does love us and that he doesn't abandon us or condemn us, but he lays his life down for us. I encourage you guys to come up for prayer. I encourage you guys, if you want to come up and celebrate the good news of the gospel, because that's it. Jesus is our hope in that dark place. And that is good news, people. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have anyone who wants to come up for prayer to come up. And we're going to have the worship team come up. And the way we do this is just, um, you know, we just come and bring ourselves before God. And we just uh, open our hands to him. And people who have been trained on our prayer ministry team will just come up and pray encouragement over you. And if you don't want to come up, you can do that at your chair, but it's just a way to publicly just bring yourself before God. And so if our prayer ministers will come up and anybody who just wants to leave space to respond to God will come up. And we'll just move into that. <laughs>